This is Salt and Spine. Another big challenge is that this restaurant was created in a world built by all the systems that I would like to fight against. Every inch that we make at Willa Jean usually has like a foot long fight behind it that we don't ever really get to talk about. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Kelly Fields. Kelly is the chef owner of Willa Jean in New Orleans. Now, growing up in Charleston, you'll hear in our conversation that food was a big part of Kelly's childhood, and you'll hear about the path that ultimately took her to culinary school and then to New Orleans, where she worked for Chef Susan Spicer and at the celebrated restaurant August. And it all led to Willa Jean, her bakery and restaurant that produces incredible dishes. I can vouch for it. I still think about my last meal there often. But there's no need to dream about it because now Kelly has put it all in a cookbook for home cooks to recreate in your home kitchens. It's her first cookbook titled The Good Book of Southern Baking, a revival of biscuits, cakes, and cornbread. And it's full of more than 100 recipes with her takes on classic recipes. Now, Kelly joined us remotely for this week's episode, and of course, stick around. As always, we're closing today's show by playing a little culinary game. So let's head now to our virtual studio, where Kelly Fields joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Kelly. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, we're thrilled to have you, um, and congratulations on your first cookbook, The Good Book of Southern Baking. It's beautiful. Thank you very much. So we'll we'll come back to the cookbook in a second, but we always like to start just by talking a little bit about you, your life, sort of how you came to be the baker that you are today. So I understand you grew up in South Carolina, is that right? Yeah, right outside of Charleston, South Carolina. Okay, outside of Charleston. And food played, I think, a pretty significant role in your life when you were growing up. I know you've talked about and written about your mother was a pretty avid baker, gardener. Can you tell us a little bit about what food meant to you when you were growing up? Yeah. uh, So growing up, I lived on the water and my mom grew most of the produce that we consumed in the backyard. And I remember as a kid coming home from from school and going fishing in the backyard to catch some fish or uh, shrimping or I dropped crab nets before school and then go pull them up and see what I got. Cooking something out of the garden and then cooking dinner because I have two siblings. And so the three of us like we're on a rotation of who cooked, who cleaned the dishes after dinner, you know, just typical chore stuff. Um, and as I got older, I started trading, like cleaning for cooking because I really love cooking. And I, I don't think neither, either one of my siblings loved it. My sister in particular was not good at it at all. Still okay. is not. Um, okay. <laughs> so, so I took on cooking as often as I could. And my mom on the weekends was always baking stuff for us or baking cookies for somebody in the neighborhood canning and preserving like I remember as a kid going on um trips on the weekend to the farmer's market and my mom would buy just like bushels and bushels of, of peaches or apples and corn and just like come home and like process it and can it or pickle it or make cream corn and can it and put it away for the for the rest of the year yeah you really seem to have like a, a really strong connection to ingredients too when you mm-hmm. were a kid which I think is not always common. yeah it took me it took me 30 years to really appreciate that that's the way I grew up so yeah. Now I'm really, you know, I finally confessed to my mom pretty recently that birds weren't eating her tomatoes. It was me. Like when I was a kid, <laughs> I would like steal them and go hide and eat them because I love them so much. So um, yeah. yeah, I didn't appreciate it as a kid, but I am super grateful now. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And I understand your mom was a pretty avid baker too, not just for you, but uh, you write in your book that there was sort of always a open unlocked door to your house for the neighborhood kids and others to just sort of come by. What sorts of things was she baking? And what, what do you remember from that? She, um, she always had cookies. She had the recipe that was supposedly like the rumor of the Mrs. Fields cookie. Okay, um, yeah that she would make and you know i always just thought it was because she was at the time mrs fields i didn't really understand it and we had a microwave that was only used for storing cake so there was always some kind of cake or pie in the microwave so kids would come over our friends would come over and they'd automatically open the the microwave door to see what was in there and take a little sliver of whatever cake or pie was was in there but it was always something yeah and you write too in the book about your grandparents your grandmothers specifically and both of them sort of having an influence in different ways on you as you became a cook and a baker your you talk about your mom's mother audrey baking apple cakes all the time and of course your father's mother's name was willa jean and i I thought it was interesting too that willa jean was a terrible cook you say oh terrible (laughs) yeah yeah she had two uh only two things i remember she would call her specialties and one was uh what we know shit on a shingle that she would do Uh so like the sausage with the cheese and stuff um, she would make that on special occasions. And then she would make this like stuff she called slush that was uh, orange juice concentrate. She would thaw out, add pineapple tidbits to it, cut up banana and maraschino cherries, and then refreeze it like wide so you could like grenade it almost. Okay. And I remember eating that like almost every Christmas morning growing up. Yeah. <laughs> and that was how she felt. But she, we'll come back to this too, because I, I will get into sort of your culinary career in a second. But she also, you write, was sort of your biggest cheerleader and life coach. And even though she may have been a terrible cook, um, played a really significant role in sort of being a cheerleader for you, right? Absolutely. Like her um, support of me cooking and just being who I am in the world is probably the only reason I am a cook and probably the only reason that I pursued this the way that I did, because not only did she like support it, find it like culinary school, she helped, she helped me pay for that and all this stuff because I believed in it so much, but just like rel- she was relentless that if I found what I love to do, that's exactly what I should be doing. And I'm not going to let anything stand in my way is what she taught me. So that's the short story of how I got here is just remembering yeah. those lessons from my grandma. So. And so obviously you grew up cooking as a kid um, with your family, you were exposed to food and gardening, but when did, I think there was a moment where you sort of realized you were interested in baking. I think you write that you you were 19. Is that right? Yeah. Some, uh, somewhere around there, I think Okay. Uh, I was living in New Orleans and my a friend that I had made, her parents owned a bakery here, a little family shop that was super cute. And they won a contract to do all of the bread orders for the airlines leaving uh, New Orleans airport. So okay. what that means is they went from mom and pop to, I think it was 18,000 pieces of bread they needed to produce overnight, which who knows how to do that. I know. Um, right. So they called in every, any, anybody and everybody they'd ever known to come help them make this happen. And I was just one of the people that showed up and a week later I was working there full time. I loved it so much. So that's where it all started. And you're- what what was it that appealed to you? I mean, you're sort of just p- churning out bread for the airlines, right? Like, it, yeah, what yeah. was it that sort of spoke to you? Um, I did a lot of the bread stuff, but I also helped uh, the woman that was doing like the pastry at the time in the in the bakery. I would uh, she taught me how to make cheesecakes and stuff because they had to produce all the regular stuff too. 
And I love the challenge of it and the speed of it and just the energy around and how much I was learning, how quickly. And it was something that felt so familiar because it, I had cooked so much growing up. And it was the early well, early 90s. So it was like right when Food Network was starting, right when chefs were, were starting to get a little bit of attention. And it was all of a sudden, all of that happened at once. So it was like, oh, this is something you can do and make a living at. So at that point, you're already living in New Orleans, right? You moved from South Carolina to New Orleans and then started working for Susan Spicer. Is that right? Yep. So I worked at the bakery for a little while and talked to my grandma, Willie Jean, about how much I loved it, um, how it was what I wanted to do. Started entertaining the idea of culinary school. And she um, suggested I find a chef in New Orleans that I wanted to work for. Like, who do I want to be compared to or who do I want to emulate and find that person and go work for them and make sure it is what I want to do. So I started researching, found Susan, talked to a couple of people that worked in her kitchens um, and applied there and started the day after my interview and worked there until I decided that it is absolutely what I want to do and decided to go to culinary school. So I left in 2000 and went back to Charleston and did Johnson Wales University. And you write in the book too, that it took you some time to realize for sure that that was actually something you wanted to make into a career. Is that right? It wasn't sort of an overnight thing. I wasn't, no, it wasn't overnight because, you know, there's, I mean, especially in the nineties, it's, it was pretty cutthroat. It was, you know, everything was territorial. It was uh, the stereotypical lifestyle being a cook, being a, being a cook in, in restaurants. Um, so it took a little bit and seeing somebody as professional as Susan and what, you know, the way that she held herself and the, the quality of food she was cooking and the, the environment she created for people to come in and shine and learn and um, really just do good work. That's really what turned me on to want to make it a career. Yeah. So you go to culinary school, graduate from Johnson and Wales and move back to New Orleans. Is that right? Right Listen away. And go to work at August. And you write to that 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 role at August where you were hired like on the spot as the pastry chef, right? Yeah, um, never was really <laughs> never what? I never should have been. I was in so over my head at that place for a long time. But and you you still write to this day that that was um, I think you used the word paramount, like a, a really important role for you, and particularly as you were thinking about ingredients. I think is that right? Can you talk about sort of what that what you went through in that role? Yeah, that. Um, position really allowed me to explore ingredients in a way that I never had before because I would my whole dessert menu turned into tastings so there were five desserts on the menu but every dessert was broken down like the smallest one was three different desserts like you know if it was a fig tasting it'd be three different preparations of figs or uh, you know at one point my chocolate dessert was like 11 different desserts Um, okay wow and so, I, and that, and those things change daily. So I really got to take my time and really like learn figs, three desserts at a time, and three like, what do they do when you bake them? What do they do when you poach them? What do you do when you know you dehydrate them and everything in between, and how to really work with the fig to make the expression of that fig as great as it can be on a plate in a dessert, and do that you know, a hundred times over with any fruit or vegetable or chocolate, any anything you can think of. Yeah, really a deep dive into how ingredients work. And then Katrina hits, right? And I think, are you still at August when that happens? Yep. And so Katrina hits and you write to, and there's a picture in the book, you write that you, you lost all of the notebooks, all the mm-hmm. recipes, 
you had sort of accumulated in your career. There's a picture in the book of some handwritten notes. Is that are the, is that a picture of what you put back together then yeah. after after that? Yeah. So when I left for Katrina, I drove through the storm and ended up in Florida. Uh, and then we realized that the levees broke. We weren't going to be a lot, uh, able to get back. So I went up to where my mom lives outside of Asheville, North Carolina. And the, the first full day I was there, I went and bought a notebook and had to sit down and start writing everything I could remember back down so I wouldn't lose it. And that meant like I sat down and closed my eyes and did the muscle memory of each recipe as if I was making it and like writing down what I would do so I could start building back, you know, the, the five years of notebooks that I lost. Yeah. What was that process like for you? I mean, emotionally, let's have to sort of rebuild your knowledge in that, in that way. You know, at first it was devastating, um, but all the way through, even today, I feel so grateful for what my experience was in that and so privileged to come out alive and come out able to fully recover in a way that so many people in New Orleans weren't able to do and still aren't able to do 15 years later. But it really, it opened a door for me and sort of forced me out of my comfort zone to go you know, explore the world a little bit, go work for people that I would have never had the opportunity to work with or for if that hadn't happened, if that hadn't pushed me out of something I was really comfortable with. And I, I feel grateful for it. I still, like 15 years later, things that I didn't remember in the moment after because there was so much going on, like, you know, this week I'll think about something that I did before the storm that I never wrote down and, and write it down again. Yeah, it's always it's always coming back. So you, you mentioned you traveled, you took that opportunity to travel the world, to work different places. Um, I mean, you traveled, you write about this a little bit, but you traveled quite extensively, right? Across Europe, across the Middle East, you worked for a while in San Francisco, you did a lot of woofing, which I don't know if every all of our listeners know what woofing is, but like you really sort of immersed yourself in working on olive farms, working in bakeries. Like, can you tell us a little bit about what that time was like for you and what you learned from that process or experiences? Again, it goes, a lot of it goes back to ingredients and getting to know ingredients. And, you know, especially like I spent some time in New Zealand and you, you said olives and like I'd schedule it. So one week I'd work at the olive farm for the olive harvest, which is the hardest work I've ever done. Uh, you know, the next week you're at the olive oil press, pressing all the, like everybody brings their, their olive harvest to this one place and really understanding how different olive oils that are even growing in the same place are. Um, and yeah. understanding flavors. You know, the bigger life lesson of, of traveling is always sort of like letting go and, and just seeing seeing where I ended up and when I ended up there. Because in the kitchen, I was so like type A and so like every minute was planned and everything was prepped. And, you know, I just was a control freak. And so travel really let me let that side of myself go. Like I threw my, my watch and my phone into the ocean whenever I got somewhere. So I wouldn't have it. Literally? Literally. Literally. Yeah. Whenever you'd get to a new place, you'd just like toss your phone. Yeah, like when I landed in New Zealand, it took me a couple of days because I didn't think about it. And then I kept getting phone calls at like four in the morning from the produce guy I used to order from when I was living in San Francisco, even though I told uh-huh. him I wasn't there anymore. And I realized I didn't need it. And I like went to, it was the Tasman Sea and I threw my phone into the water. Yeah. And I slept at the beach and that's sort of, it's such a different, it's such a 180 from who you are in a kitchen and who I am when I'm working. So it was just like the other side, like I compartmentalized parts of who I was and traveling really let that like sort of come together. 
Yeah. yeah. And probably, I mean, a much needed thing to do because I think I've read that you worked like pretty much nonstop at August, like never taking a day off more or yeah, less. I had six days off in my first like three and a half years. I think wow. is what I figured out. Yeah. Yeah. So I understand the throwing the phone into the ocean for sure. But but there's this pull still because you you then eventually come back to New Orleans, right? And and open Willa Jean. When did that sort of hit you that you wanted to that you wanted to go back to New Orleans? I was in New Zealand and I went to one of those little internet cafes in a hostel in some tiny town on the South Island and I got an email from Michael Galato, who was the chef de cuisine at August at the time, who I'd worked for and with uh, before Katrina. And he had just taken over and he mapped out what his vision for August was and what he wanted to do and that he wanted me to be part of it. And, you know, would I come back and uh, sign on to that with him? And I, I love Michael more than most people in the world. So it just kept, I just kept thinking about it. Like, even though I was trying to be like real in New Zealand while I was there, I kept thinking about it. And it finally was like, yeah, that's, that's what's next. So I ran back and I said, as soon as I'm done here and back on, you know, headed back that way, I'm, I'm coming for you. And so you go back and how long was it before you opened Willa Jean? Um, I came back here in 2010 and Willa Jean opened in August 2015. So we just turned five. Okay. And when did you decide it was time to open your own place, your own bakery? I think I got really serious about it in about 2011, you know, thinking about my experience and thinking about like the space I wanted to create. I think in 2011 is when the real serious conversation started happening. Then it was a matter of like finding the right space and building that out and building a team, you know, building a brand, doing the things we do. Yeah. And obviously finding a physical space, but I think you've also been celebrated a lot in the industry for the place that you've built for not only your customers, but for your team and your staff, right? Like you've been really intentional about creating an inclusive environment, an inclusive restaurant, an inclusive workplace, like to the point of I saw this year, you're providing vans so folks can go vote on election day. So your staff can go vote on election day that you provide healthcare. Like what can you sort of talk about how you've approached the culture that you've created at Willa Jean? I mean, first and foremost, like it's still like everything's still a moving target. And as much as we put one foot in front of the other, we still have a long walk in front of us. Um, and I think I think knowing that and being committed to the fact that we don't always get it right helps us continue to move forward. And the biggest point for me is like creating a space that I would really like to work and would have liked to have worked over the last 25 years in the industry and sort of undoing all of, undoing as many stereotypes as I'm able about what restaurant work means and what it equates to for all of us, like, you know, pay and, you know, how much do you have to work and that you don't get days off and that you don't get healthcare. There's no support. It's important to me to like continue to try to make it a really sustainable career path for anybody that wants to come here and do it. Yeah. And I mean, as you like mentioned, the industry on the whole, I mean, there's so many systemic issues that have sort of plagued the restaurant industry, an industry that's like, seeped in white supremacy that has all sorts of economic issues when it comes to fair labor practices. How, as you talk about, like, just building a place that you yourself would want to work, how hard has that been to sort of undo some of those things and unravel some of those systemic things? It's been, it's, it's really challenging. And, you know, a lot of the challenge, to be real honest, is uh, unlearning my own shit, like not even the industry shit, but um, am I allowed to say shit? Yeah. 
Like, yeah, you are. Yeah, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> um, you know, especially, you know, being in fine dining for 20 years before this place and being in male-dominated kitchens and that sort of, I almost want to call it like programming that I got in that experience of, you know, you show up to work looking like this and everything has to be perfect and you don't have showing tattoos and you don't have piercings and you don't have funny hair and, or like any of those things. Like, I have to unlearn that all, all the time. Like I have this reactionary response um, that I have spent the past six years undoing from being reactionary to a mistake during service to even, you know, allowing people just to show up as they are. That's a challenge I'm committed to every day. Another big challenge is that this restaurant was created in a world built by all the systems that I would like to fight against. Every inch that we make at Willa Jean usually has like a foot long fight behind it that we don't ever really get to talk about. So it's not the easiest thing in the world, but it's 100% the right thing to be doing and worth it. Yeah. And and it's never done. The work is never done. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Kelly Fields. Don't go anywhere. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine. This week, you'll find a chance to win your own copy of the Good Book of Southern Baking. And you'll also find two recipes from the book, Willa Jean's Chocolate Chip Cookies with Vanilla Milk and a recipe for warm chocolate pudding. We love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors every week to tell the stories behind cookbooks, from Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostra and Carla Hall to today's guest, Kelly Fields. Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. We also just launched our new Salt and Spine Cookbook Club, where you can cook along with one of our featured authors each month, and then join us for a virtual dinner party with that author. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with Kelly Fields, author of The Good Book of Southern Baking. So I understand, turning to the book a little bit, that you, at at first, at least initially, weren't super interested in writing a cookbook. Is that right? (laughs) Right. I don't, yeah. Which I I think is not an uncommon thing among cookbook authors, especially first-time cookbook authors. Like, it's it's a daunting thing. Can you talk about, like, what changed your mind or how you sort of feel about the process having done it now? I didn't think I had much to say. Like, I don't think my voice amongst the number of talented bakers, especially in the South, has more or less to say than the next person, you know? I'm also incredibly socially awkward 99% of the time. So putting myself out there in a way that's that like real and permanent and tangible is terrifying and scary. And I didn't want to do it. But people just kept asking and the people that have supported Willa Jean and supported me and just really love what the team and myself do here just kept being persistent about asking and at the end of the day, it's the least I can do for the people that want it is to give them like, here's something and if they take that and make it in their own homes and celebrate it with their own families and friends, like that's a pretty great gift for me. Yeah. And you talk in the beginning of the book about wanting to make it a really approachable and accessible book and sort of to an extent, I guess, like demystify this idea some folks have that like baking is such a 
a science and it is to some extent, but right. You talk about like many of us with grandmothers, you included had grandmothers who like baked from not from like rigid recipes. Right. How much of that like guided your, your book process? Uh, I think all of that is what it's guided by really. There's there, I would say there are two recipes in the book that are really technical and challenging, but the hundred and, 32 others about. I really wanted to make a book that was, again, about the ingredients and about a foundation that, you know, here's this recipe. This is how I think the best version of it comes out. But literally, like, do whatever you want. It doesn't have to be so intimidating. It doesn't have to be so measured and so exacting. Like, all of Southern baking comes from a place where this is what we have. Let's figure out what we can make from it. And just like literally playing with food. And that's what people should be doing. I do. Like literally, I most of the time I have no idea what I'm doing. And so if I can make something work, I think anybody can make anything work. So Yeah. And and you even open the book or at the towards the very beginning with like a baking year at a glance, which is this wonderful little like illustrated page of like different days beyond sort of the traditional folks when people are traditional days when folks might think about baking like a holiday or a birthday or something for sort of totally random days. Um, yeah. It's always an occasion. Right? Always. It, yeah. You also fill the book with some of these great um tips I guess we could call them and like techniques um one of the things that stuck out to me was your cornbread recipe and the fact that you soak it overnight can you talk about some of the like things you think people might take away who are avid bakers from looking at the recipes in your book yeah I mean I think I think I'm pretty open in the book that things like the cornbread uh that sort of happened out of accident or out of making a mistake are often the things that lead to the best version of that thing so that came about as a mistake. Yeah, we uh, we were mixing cornbread. We started, we realized we didn't have enough of something. So we just stuck the cornmeal and corn flour and buttermilk in the fridge to finish the next day. And then we mixed it all and baked it. And it was just the most tender, best crumbed cornbread I had ever had. So we ran a couple things and realized what a significant impact that made for us. And that's just the way we do it now. I mean, that's, yeah, that's that's the thing. And all of those little tips and techniques are are ways to make things easier and ways to think about baking and thinking about food in a way that makes it really approachable and something that you can just do on a Tuesday just because you want to try something and you got some delicious figs, you know? Yeah, exactly. We always like to talk just before we close a little bit about cookbooks sort of generally too. Um, Are there cookbooks that have been like particularly inspirational for you or important to you in your career or ones that you just sort of idolize? Uh, I idolize and have more copies than I should admit to Claudia Fleming's The Last Course. Yeah. I, Just that, reissued, too. She did. It's yeah. super amazing. We have a, um, I got to cook with her for the first time last year, two years ago. Just literally, she blows my mind in every way. Um, yeah. But I, I have that cookbook any anywhere that I'm cooking, it's close by, whether it's at work or at home or anywhere, anywhere in between. I think it's the most perfect dessert cookbook ever written. I also love the book Culinary Artistry. One of the cookbooks I've referenced, it's more of a reference book than a a cookbook per se, but they have a list of all the ingredients, like every ingredient you can imagine, like the season it grows in, where it grows best, and then all the flavors that go with it. And I reference that part of that book more more than any other cookbook per se. I've been cooking a lot lately, out of Asha Gomez's My Two Souths. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
trying to trying to learn something about Indian food. It's not a way that I've ever cooked before, and I'm just fascinated by it. And so, having eaten Asha's food so often, and it's so delicious, I figured that was a good place to start. Yeah, um, great book. And all of Antonio Bashore's cookbooks, okay. and all of Lori Greenspan's cookbooks. I, yeah, I, I, love, I love cookbooks. I have a lot of cookbooks. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Well, that concept of like Southern baking coming from what ingredients do we have and what can we make with them, and also the book Culinary Artistry, I think both set us up perfectly for the game we're going to play to close this episode today. So we've got some cards here. It also is sort of reminds me of like your days at August when you would take an ingredient and make a few different desserts out of it. So I want to sort of put you to the test and we can draw an ingredient from our cards here and see if you can tell us like one or two or three different dishes that you would make if you were doing like a a course for that ingredient. So you can pick the category. We have flavors, which are like spices, herbs, etc. Mm-hmm. Vegetables, vegetables, proteins, if you want to be adventurous. Um, and then secret ingredient is like particularly adventurous. This is a whole range of things, some obscure, some just sort of not so obscure, but secret. Right, I'm going to start with vegetables. He's my way okay. Let's do a vegetable. Uh, let's pick one from the middle. Okay, we have green beans. Can we make a dessert or two from green beans? <laughs> we do green beans. So, okay, so green beans are summer around here. So I would do a tomato and green bean dessert, and I would do some sort of uh, tomato cake. Tomato juice happens to have the same pH as buttermilk. So you can take your favorite like white cake or yellow cake recipe and substitute the buttermilk for tomato juice and pick it. And then I would do a really nice Claudia in the last course. We'll go there. Has a sauteed uh, plums and tomatoes in her book. Do it with that with some green beans in there. But I'd probably juice some green beans and make a like make a sorbet out of them. I'll be honest. Oh yeah, that sounds refreshing. So yeah. a little cake and a little sorbet on the side. Yeah, and a little sauteed. Vegetables with the plums. I think that'd be delicious. Yeah. Oh, I think that'd be really fun. good. Yeah. And I appreciate sometimes when we play a dessert theme game like this, people everybody just wants to candy anything. So I appreciate that we didn't yeah. just like candy the green green beans. I'm a, I'm a big advocate that food should taste how it sounds. And so like if it's a green bean, I want it to taste like a green bean. Not yeah, like exactly. Um, let's do another round. What what category should we pick? Flavors. 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 Okay. Let's pick a flavor. Okay. Oh well, this is. This is great. Vanilla. Oh, vanilla. I wrote a love Like, I think I wrote a love note to vanilla in my cookbook. I love it so much. Yeah. Um, Your vanilla milk latte is one of my favorite dishes in all of New Orleans, I think. And I haven't been to New Orleans in over a year, and I'm, like, craving that so badly. That's such good news. I I drink them every morning. Five years into it, I still every morning. I still have it. Um, What would I do with I really love the approach of like the vanilla tart that Pierre May does, where okay. it's just a simple, simple vanilla custard in a tart shell. That simple. I also really love putting a lot of vanilla into a chest, like a chest pie, oh, uh, yeah. which is a cornmeal, a cornmeal uh, custard pie that we make in the South. A lot of times you find it with a citrus, like citrus notes in it, like lemon or orange, but I think overloading it with some vanilla really makes it a beautifully elegant pie. Um, yeah. And I would do that and just let it sing on its own. And serve it all with like a glass of the vanilla milk on the side. Absolutely. I hope. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Okay, final round, and this is the the secret ingredient card. I'm going to pick this one for you because this is the secret ingredient card that people always feel conflicted by. But I feel like I I trust that you will do something amazing if you were working with gummy bears. Oh, gummy bears! Ew. <laughs> do you like gummy bears? No. Yeah, melt gummy bears down. I mean, do people like? Do they have to be bears? Could be worms. It could be worms. Let's say oh. you have like a arsenal of gummy candies at your disposal. <laughs> Like we really like, kind of like the dessert, the dessert, uh, they call it dirt here where it's like oh, yeah. chocolate pudding and like cake right. crumbs with all that. I would definitely do some really grown up version of that uh-huh. uh, and do some, do some really like nice chocolate custard with, uh, like chocolate cookies. And then just for a surprise, have a little gummy thing in there somewhere. That might be really fun. Yeah. I like that. I forgot I mean, about I dirt. I don't want to turn them into something else. Like, I let it be what it is, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it's it's so nostalgic, right? Those dirt, dirt cups, I think we would call them. Yeah, dirt cups. Cool. Yeah. Or you could just, like, melt them down and try to make them into patafouille, I guess. I don't, right. Like, gummy bear. Right. Well, thank you, Kelly. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from the Good Book of Southern Baking. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes and join the Salt and Spine community to support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you tired of political podcasts, peddling horse paste, and man supplements? Then listen to The Bituation Room with me, Francesca Fiorentini, featuring progressive comedians, activists, and experts. We break down the week's news with plenty of laughs and ridiculousness, which we desperately need, while diving deep into juicy left topics like remaking the police, abortion rights, and why Jeff Bezos is a cyborg. Get The Bituation Room right to your ear holes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, anywhere except Facebook. Podcasts on Facebook are going away June 3rd, so consider yourself poked. The Bituation Room with Francesca Fiorentini. If I can't laugh, it's not my revolution. A-cast, 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 A-cast recommends. recommends.